Good morning again and uh, welcome in Christ's name as we turn our attention to uh, his word and what God might be saying to us as a community, a sustaining word that is always promised and brought in the Holy Scriptures. So excited to share with you in this uh, text today in Matthew 13, uh, 3, 13 through 17. Do we have any uh, West Wing fans out there? The Aaron Sorkin uh, show from the late 90s? Okay, a few of you out there. So I, I missed it in the 90s and when it was on television, but uh, thanks to Netflix, I was able to catch up uh, while we were in seminary when we had a little a, a baby that was needed to be rocked and walked around at night. That's when I was introduced to the West Wing. And <clears throat> there's a great, uh, it's a great show. Aaron Sorkin does a great job. But one of the characters in the show is a guy called Leo. And Leo's older than anyone else in the in the kind of around the, the Oval Office, and he serves as the chief of staff. And so he kind of emerges as this mentor for all these young White House staffers. And he's just kind of old school, hardline. He was a military veteran. Uh, he's also a recovering alcoholic. So he has the wisdom of somebody who's been through something like that, and he's able to kind of shepherd these younger people. So there comes a point in the show where one of the young, fiery, uh, up-and-coming uh, staffers in the Oval Office area where he's facing some really dark things. He's having a really hard time and uh, he's going through some stuff. He's facing some PTSD and some of that. And so Leo kind of comes along and puts his arm around him and, and helps him through this phase. And at, at this critical point in the story, Leo tells Josh, the guy who's going through the, the problems, uh, Leo tells him this story. He says, all right, Josh, so it's like this. Because <clears throat> Josh is confused. He's like, why are you helping me? Why are you willing to help me so much? You know, you, I, here I am and I'm a mess. And so Leo kind of defends his actions by telling this story. He says, so it's like this. A guy is walking along and he falls into a hole. All right, and the walls are steep and he can't get out. He's stuck. And so a doctor passes by and our guy, he calls out. He says, hey, doc. I'm down here in this hole, and I can't get out. Can you help me? And the doctor says, sure. And he stops and writes a prescription and drops it in the hole. And, um, hey, doc, notice, notice, notice I said he, okay? All right, yeah, you would have you never done that. All right, the next one's on me, so it's coming. And so next, a priest walks by, right? And the guy calls out, hey, father, I'm down in this hole, and I'm stuck, and I can't get out, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And the... Priest stops and writes a prayer and tosses it down the hole. And uh, he walks on. Well, then finally a friend walks by and our guy calls out, Hey, Joe, I'm down here in this hole and I, I'm stuck and I can't get out. And so his friend jumps in the hole with him. He said, Joe, why in the world would you jump in the hole? Now we're both stuck. And his friend replies, Yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Sometimes what we need most when we're in the midst of life is someone who can identify with us, someone who can stand with us in whatever we're facing and walk with us to the other side. So the sermon title today is a direct quote ripoff from a Guy Clark song. And the song is called Old Friends. But the sermon title is when you really feel abandoned and you want to be alone. It's the paradox of when we need help the most and we 
have a tendency to push help away. So you really feel abandoned, but you want to be alone. And in this song, Guy Clark does a beautiful job of describing why we need old friends in our life, right? People who know us and they can see through all our layers and all our defense mechanisms. And when we say, no, I don't need anything, they're there for us anyways. You know, and they stand in the hole with us and they walk us through the stuff that we can't see a way out of. When you really feel abandoned, but you want to be alone. To me, that song lyric captures the essence of our human pain when we are hurting and when we experience things uh, that we don't know the way through. Some of those things, of course, we experience as human beings, we bring upon ourselves and we know that and we raise our hands and say, oh yeah, I went through that because I brought all that whole thing on myself. And many of the other things, of course, come to us without us ever asking for them or acting or thinking or behaving in such a way that we would bring those things into our life. They just show up just because of life. So what we really need when we really feel abandoned but we want to be alone is that perfect friend, that person who can identify with us perfectly. And so I'm asking the question this morning as we look at this text, what is God's response to his human beings, his creation, all creation really, what is God's response to his creation in pain? When God sees us suffering, when he sees us in a predicament, in our unique quandary, what is his response to our state? I invite you to read with me in Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and yet you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word today. One of the best ways to find out what God might say to us in the present is to inquire and to look at what God would have said, what God did say in the past. And so we search back through the scriptures and we realize that one of the ways that God answered his creation in pain and our crying out is he sent people to us. Think of these people coming to us as old friends. He sent us the prophets, right? He sent the prophets to us who would tell us the truth who would give us a wake-up call when we needed it, and they would remind us that if we just hang in just a little while longer, there will be a reward for the faithful. The prophets were always reminding us of those things, right? Hang in there. You've been fighting the good fight. Hang on. You know, God will not abandon you. He will come to your rescue. He will come to your aid. And then the prophets have to tell us sometimes, hey, wake up. You've fallen asleep, right? You're falling asleep on the job, on the watch. It's time to wake up and take your position wherever you are. And then God didn't only send prophets to tell us the truth, but he sent priests to us. Priests who could stand in the middle of our human condition 
and represent us to God and then represent God to us. And so we had all the great priests, right, the Levites, those who would stand there who would lead us through confession when we needed to make confession and they would pronounce to us that we were forgiven people, that God had forgiven us and that they would announce that to people. Hey, you've come through these ceremonies and it's our job and our privilege to tell you that you are forgiven of your sins. They would mediate that transaction for us, confession and forgiveness. And then we needed people to lead us, you know, to show us the way we should go. And so God sent kings. We asked for kings and God sent them. And, and at their best, kings were the ones that led us as a people, the places we needed to go. They protected us. They fought for us. And they made sure that we had an opportunity to be faithful to God and to raise our families and our communities in ways that were uh, honoring to God. And so, of course, the prophets came and the priests came and the kings came and they lived among us. And some of them served faithfully, but many of them served themselves and therefore did not serve faithfully. And so even with all the great prophets and all the great priests and all the great kings, none of them were able to serve us perfectly. So we were still looking for that perfect friend, that perfect word, that perfect prophet, that perfect priest, that perfect king to lead us in the way that we needed to go in the midst of our unique human condition. So what is God's response? His most fitting word to us in such pain, in such a predicament. And if you'd use your imagination for just a second, um, sorry, that didn't sound right. You're always using your imagination if you're listening to me. But um, it's it, just imagine, imagine for a moment the Jordan River, okay? And I've never seen the Jordan River except in photographs. So just I'm thinking Oak Creek Lake or, you know, uh, Lake Sweetwater or a river in Colorado. Just imagine whatever water source you can and see Jordan River there. And some of you may have actually seen the Jordan, so you can imagine it perfectly. And I want you to imagine at the bottom of the Jordan, okay? So in the silt and in the rocks and in all the, just down there at the bottom where it's too dark to see, I want you to imagine that all of my pain and your pain and all of our sin, all of our struggle, all of our fear, everything that we carry that's too much for us to carry, I want you to imagine that it all is settling down there in the bottom of the Jordan River, okay? That the bottom of the Jordan River represents all of that stuff that kind of describes the human painful experience, okay? So there, there it is at the bottom of the river. It is into that very scene that God spoke a perfect word. And that perfect word was a person. He was a son. And Matthew tells us, then Jesus came from Galilee, from his home, to Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. And so we ask the question, just like John asked the question, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? I mean, for crying out loud, this is, remember what John was doing in baptism, right? He was, he was bringing a baptism of repentance. So the people would come carrying the, their guilt and knowing that they needed to change their life and they needed to turn, and he's preaching the baptism of repentance. Hey, if you've got two coats, give one away. And if you've got this going on, 
you know, change your behavior over here and you all need to do this and shape up. And so people are coming for the freedom that comes with confessing and being forgiven and the baptism of repentance. And so John's out there and all of those sins and all of those behaviors and all of that pain. And there it is just being washed away. Just all the, all of it right there in the Jordan River. And so Jesus comes out and John sees him coming and he goes, you're the lamb of God. You're the perfect lamb of God. There is no sin in you. And no way I'm baptizing you, man. If anybody gets baptized today between the two of us, it's going to be me. And you're doing it. You know, John was rightfully, he, he, he was apprehensive. And so Jesus says this beautiful thing to him that Matthew records for us. And Matthew is the only gospel writer that tells us this part of the story. And so John says, I, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't baptize you. And, and, and then Jesus res- responds though, he says, um, let, let it be so now, uh, for we're going to do this and it's going to fulfill all righteousness. And when he says that phrase, it's going to fulfill all righteousness, then John consents because he figures out what's going on. What does that mean to fulfill all righteousness? What is Jesus up to by agreeing to wander down and place his perfect feet in the silt and the rocks with all of our stuff. Why is Jesus climbing in to that mess? Okay, so the word fulfill and fulfilling all righteousness. This is a big theme for Matthew. and He loves the theme of righteousness. Now, sometimes when we see the word righteousness in Matthew, it does mean uh, our behavior, like our moral conduct. And that's a good thing to aspire to, right? And Jesus shows us how to do that. There's a certain way that we should live in the world where we're choosing what is right what is just, what is beautiful, what is true, what is good. Now that's one piece of it, to be a a righteous person. The other piece of what righteousness means in Matthew's Gospel is it means that that is God's saving plan. So think about uh, the Beatitudes where in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's capturing both of these things that we, we hunger and thirst for a way to live that is a good and beautiful way. We also hunger and thirst for righteousness that we can't bring ourselves. We hunger and thirst to be right with God in a way that is only possible if God meets us and saves us and rescues us. And so God's entire salvation rescue project is referred to in Matthew's gospel at times as Righteousness. Well, that's what's happening. God's saving plan. So John knows that there's a plan out there. And John knows he's part of it. And he's the voice crying in the wilderness, right? Make straight the pathway. Prepare the way of the Lord. He's quoting Isaiah. It's all coming down. And here comes Jesus. And they're preparing. And here he is. John gets that. Fulfill all righteousness. God's saving plan. He's like, okay, now's the time for me to move out of the way. I'm the one that baptized with water for repentance, but I've been telling you about the one that will come over here and he'll baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's like, I, ah, now is that time. And imagine that experience for John. So he walks with Jesus into the river, all right? And, this, and he just walks right in the middle of all of our stuff. And to me, that's really part A of the good news of the gospel is that the first thing Jesus does is he wanders out into our human condition having already been born into it. And he stands with his perfect feet 
in our mess and identifies perfectly with us. When you really feel abandoned, that you want to be alone, there's one person who understands that perfectly and stands with us. So Jesus really fulfills all righteousness in both senses of the word. Yes, he lives a perfect moral life before us, but he also is the key word in God's salvation project. Jesus, the one who saves us, fulfills it in both senses. But it's fun to think about if where God sent prophets and priests and kings in the past. That's why we celebrate and the, and the theologians will always talk about Christ's three offices, that Christ perfectly fulfilled and executed all three of the Old Testament offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. So here Jesus is fulfilling the role of prophet. Now, if you'll remember back to old Ezekiel, and Ezekiel, when he is, and we, we see what, what he's facing, what he's dealing with, and he lives during a time of exile where we were a minority in the world, where God's people, we were a tiny little minority in the earth and no one knew who we were and we were just always getting kicked around and beat up we got ran out of our uh homes we got ran out of our place we're living in a country that's not ours we there's a foreign language is being spoken around us we don't know our way around uh that we refer to that time period in israel's history as the exile and so ezekiel's right there in the middle of exile and he starts his story by saying in the 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day of the month as I was among the exiles by the river Shabar, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. All right, and so what are, what are we seeing in, in Matthew? What are we seeing in the story of Jesus? The heavens are open and I saw visions of God. All right, that's prophet. Now the priest, uh, we see that Jesus is stepping in to God's saving plan, that there is that he's, he stands as one who perfectly identifies with us and is able to represent us, therefore, perfectly to God, would be a perfect mediator. And then remember the kings. What would the kings do when they were starting their office, right? They've been called by God, they've been appointed, and they're about to start their work, and there was sort of an inauguration. And we would call that the anointing. That's the time where they were set apart, and very often in the Old Testament, there would be oil they'd pour on their head and water they'd pour on their head and all these things going on. And very often we see in the Scriptures that the Spirit of God would rest upon them. And that would be kind of like, okay, that's the, the capstone of the anointing and everybody's ready to go. The Spirit of God rests on this person and now we, we can follow them now because they're carrying around the Spirit of God. So with those three offices kind of floating around in our minds, we hear this story then a little differently, as Matthew's readers would have heard it in the first century. So Jesus is baptized, and immediately as he's coming up from the water, behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice came from heaven and said, so remember Ezekiel. And remember the kings. And all of this is coming together. The heavens are open and this cosmic event is happening. And remember the vision of a dove and what the dove signified. New creation, right? Before God created anything, the writer of Genesis tells us that the Spirit of God was fluttering over the waters. 
or we're thinking bird, and then Noah gets the news of new creation from a dove. And so now Jesus sees the Spirit of God descend on him and rest on him like a dove. And we're seeing all of these hopeful things about a new world, a new way to be. All the while, God is saying to us, I am with you. I see you in your condition, and I am with you. So, what is it that God says? We just heard Matthew tells that Jesus heard a voice from heaven, and something was said. Something was said so that other people could hear, so they could write it down. What was it that God would say to Jesus, and what would he say to the people? Um, I think of this as God's vocal summary to his family. So imagine if there was just sort of like one thing you would want your family to know, a vocal summary of everything you would want to give to your grandchildren, your kids, your neighborhood kids, your family members. I think this is one of those things that God would say, this, this vocal summary, a, a call to recognize who we are and our very core and our very identity. And this is a fitting word for me to hear. I don't know about you, but this time of year, this season, the first part of January, uh, and, and those of you that work in gyms and in, in schools and in the different things, you can see the ramp up. Uh, what season is this? It's goal setting season, right? Everywhere you work and everything you do, what are you going to accomplish in 2020? And now some of those things we have to accomplish to keep our jobs, they're very important. And I, I, it's very important for me to set goals and set goals of family and personal and work and community and all those things. It's goal setting season when we're thinking like we have to do these things to justify the breath in our lungs or whatever it is that we tell ourselves to keep going, right? We got we got to get these things done and they drive us and they motivate us. So I think it's a perfect time of year to hear God's vocal summary to his family. This is what he says. This is what we overhear. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And Matthew's the only one that does it this way, right? Where he says, that one, that one over there, hey world, everybody that's listening, that one, that's my kid. That's my beloved son. And with him, I am well pleased. Like We know what that's like to have somebody that you're proud of. And when we're striving to tell our kids this, we say things like, I'm really proud of you. And I just want you to know that no matter what happens, I'm proud of what you've done and I'm proud of who you are. And we... We try feebly to say these things and to give these affirmations. But isn't it fun when your kid's doing something and you point and somebody says, well, whose kid is that? And then somebody turns, hey, that's my kid, that one right there. And you can just feel the pride in God's voice as he says, this one, that one is my beloved son. And with him, I am well pleased. I am very well pleased. Now, so... What's all this stuff about beloved son and being well pleased? And I mean, it makes sense. We understand it. Does that have a history? Does it come from anywhere? Uh, if we read the first verses of Isaiah 42, it sounds like this. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit in him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the longing 
call of the servant who would come, Isaiah's servant, he sung about who would come and be a perfect servant for the people. One in my chosen one in whom my soul delights. And then, if you'll remember back to the early stories of Genesis, when Abraham is asked, when God tests Abraham, and he asks him to take his son Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice, and he says, now Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, your beloved son. And that's the only time in the Old Testament that anyone is referred to as a beloved child. And it's Isaac. And we remember Isaac was a sacrifice. And so when we hear those words, beloved son, we're already thinking this is one who came as a sacrifice for us. Only instead of Mount Moriah, where Isaac was offered, we will see later that Jesus was offered on a hill called Calvary. So it's foreshadowing and all these things going on, reminding us that Christ is the perfect offering. He's the perfect sacrifice for us as well. As we wrap up, um, <clears throat> so I was coaching our, helping coach our little uh, first and second grade girls yesterday. Uh, and many of you have been a part of all of that. And you can just, you know, remember and you'll probably chuckle when you think back to watching anybody at that age play any sport, really. Uh, but a basketball gym with all the hollering and all the yelling. And, and you can remember it. You can see it. It's not a unique story. Uh, but. Uh, I'm helping coach, uh, helping Ricky Thompson, and we have this great time, a great little group of girls. And we have this one girl on our team, uh, and she has brown hair and brown eyes, and uh, and makes makes me makes me shake shake my head from the sideline. But anyway, so yesterday she um, she she dribbles down, and you know, and it's just always a zoo. It's three on three, but they all dribble down, and they all kind of shuffle their feet at the same pace, and there's some jumping and some doing things, and she gets to the goal. Just like we've trained her, and Coach Ricky's got her with that elbow in and the lined up stuff with your eye. And so she's getting, she's feeling that ball around, and she gets it set, and the mercy of the defenders don't take it away. So she gets all set, and she makes it. And so she's really excited, and then she runs back down the court and plays defense, and everything's good. And, and up to this point, she's only ever made one goal like that. So it was just, okay, here we are, back to defense, let's play. And well, a little bit later, she gets the ball again. Dribbles down to the place where she knows that she's supposed to go to shoot a high percentage shot. And uh, she gets down there and she gets set again and gets that elbow in and gets that and zones in. And what seemed like 30 seconds, maybe an hour, I don't know, it took forever. And she looks over her shoulder and then she looks back and then she looks again. And then she shoots and she makes it. And she proceeds to do this a couple more times. And I'm just shaking my head the whole time. I'm like, okay, don't, this is not the time to give her the Bobby Knight four to one defense, wins championships, all that. So I just like, okay, clap, everything's good. So later on in the day, I'm asking her, you know, after the game, I said, hey, um, you did a great job. You know, that wasn't that fun and way to do whatever. I said, why in the world were you looking over your shoulder? Why, why did you keep looking over here and, and not just shoot? And she said, well, I wanted to make sure my family was watching. As I was falling asleep last night, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. What in the world do we want more than to know 
that our family is watching. Right? We just crave that kind of affirmation where when we get in that moment where we know we've been called to and we're doing the thing and we're parenting and we're grandparenting and we're loving the people around us and we're teaching school and we're running our business and we're doing those things and we want, we just, we just catch ourselves looking around going, does anybody see me over here? I'm doing my best and I'm giving it all I've got. Is there anything about me that is uniquely beautiful? And we ask those questions. And we start asking when we're kids. And I don't think we ever stop asking those questions. And so today we have an invitation. And anytime we read this story of Christ's baptism, it's a reminder to me and a chance to remember, to believe again that God would love us enough to walk into the middle of everything that we experience and that he'd give his life as a way for us to know God and to be known perfectly by God. And that is exactly what the waters of baptism represent. The waters of baptism represent a gift that we cannot give ourselves. Only God can give us this gift. It doesn't matter who dragged us through the waters of baptism. It doesn't matter what church we were in. It doesn't matter where we were in the world or what was going on in our life. If we believed enough or someone believed on our half enough to bring us to these waters, it is God who marks us with a permanent mark and says to us, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. And with you, I am well pleased. So I want to invite us to a time of remembering our baptism. And this is just a chance for us to celebrate our belief in a God who loves us this much and in this way. It's an invitation to remember our baptism. Some of you were baptized as children, as infants, and you don't cognitively remember your baptism. But this is a way that we find ourselves back in those waters. And we can imagine being there with people that loved us enough, church members who coached us and loved us through and brought us to these waters. And so uh, the way we're going to do that today, Jenny's going to play something.